headed towards 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18. As I said, this, the psalm that we just read was something David wrote in reflection, I believe, of this very chapter, uh, chapter 18, 19. Uh, 19 actually is where it uh, comes to that moment when Saul had messengers watching David's house. So literally, here's the connection to time and place uh, and something that's going on in David's life. Um, last week, if I could just sum up one little part uh, um, that I really wanted you to catch, that I talked about the fact of the contrast of David acting wisely under God's word versus Saul, who was reacting in jealousy, bitterness, and anger. Fear ultimately was his result. And we had that great contrast as David acted wisely, more wisely, kept getting wiser. Saul was getting more afraid, more afraid as they went along. And that was because Saul had departed from God. Saul had fallen into ritual himself. Saul had fallen into the flesh and into jealousy. And that ruled his life. David, on the other hand, trusted God, leaned on God. Everything you just read in Psalm 59 points to his understanding that God stands in the way. God is the one who is the shield. God is the one who will do um, the victory. God gives David a really special friend. And I think it's interesting that the friend is right in the house of Saul. And we don't really understand necessarily how the connection was made or what connection there was there. But this friendship between David and his Saul's son, Jonathan, is the highest level of friendship. Let me read the verse. Now, when he had finished, this is 18 uh, verse 1. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It's interesting because Solomon would later write, Solomon, the son of David, would later write in Proverbs 18, 24, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. In today's lesson, in what we're going to dig into, we're going to see Jonathan step up into this place. As a friend, he's sticking up closer than a brother. As a brother, if David was flesh and blood, blood brother, Jonathan might well have had reason for jealousy. As it was, David's not even in the family, and he stands to be the king instead of Jonathan, but Jonathan sticks closer to David than he does to Saul. And this is an interesting uh, understory that's going on through this time period. The prophet Jeremiah pointed out that God had a love for Israel, much like the love that Jonathan and David shared. And in our modern world that is twisted up, doesn't know which gender they are, doesn't know what their sexual preference is and anything else, uh, the world would be tempted to label Jonathan and David as gay lovers. They couldn't be farther from the truth. These are men's men that are married, have wives, have children. They have a knit friendship. They have a love that is shared that's not a physical love, but it's a love 
perverse. It's not perverse. Yeah, I want to make sure that's that's clear because we have a world that twists and, and looks for every excuse they could have to say, oh yeah, God God approves of this or God approves of that relationship. And uh, that is nothing of the sort that we have here. But God, uh, through Jeremiah said, Yea, I will rejoice over them to do good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Talking about bringing Israel back, and actually us as well, because this is just before this, is where God says, they, uh, they will be my people and I will be their God. Is the relationship that God has with his people, is this relationship that Jonathan and David had. Jonathan Davis give us David give us just a little mirror of it. They give us a little type of it, a little shadow of that. And you'll see through this, hopefully, in this next chapter, you'll see that when um, Jonathan had every reason to go with his dad and support his father, that his love for David was pure, was full of grace. He respected his father. He did the best he could for his father, but he demonstrated that love to David at potentially a cost to himself. And I think of how Christ loved us. To come from heaven to earth, to give up the, 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 the things that he had, the privileges, the prerogatives of his deity, to give that up to come to this earth to be put in human flesh to have to sleep on the ground to to have to sleep in the boat to have to look for his next meal to have to grow up with the dents and bruises that we do through life to deal with all that and then to go to the cross for us and endure the shame endure the suffering endure the uh the denial by those closest to him when you look at the contrast here um, you know, Peter, unfortunately, I don't know how Peter dealt with how he did his denial of Christ three times. And, and yet we saw God's love for Peter. Christ was the good friend to Peter because he lifted him back up despite how far he had fallen. He lifted Peter back up. And, and who gave the first sermon of the New Testament church after Pentecost? Peter did. Yeah. Seems like there could have been a lot better choices, you know, humanly, if we were checking their resumes. But God showed love that Jonathan shows for David here. And that's special to see. We left off with David acting more wisely, Saul growing more fearful in chapter 18. And that brings us to 19. And that's where we're going to head for right now. So uh, 19, one through seven, let's take a look at it. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to his servants that they should kill David. That's called a death warrant. Okay, that's called a get him no matter what. Kill him. It's not arrest him. It's not bring him in for trial. It skips all the justice. It doesn't require a conviction by law. It doesn't require a trial by jury. Saul just skips. This is what fear does. Fear moves you to make a decision that is a foolish decision. Saul had so much fear for David 
The only thing he could come to was to kill him. Think about that. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill, for you, kill you. Therefore be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. What does Jonathan do for David right there? Gives the head up. He warns him potentially of the threat to his life. Um, let, let's bring this into the church. We have so many people say, oh, you know, mind your own business. You know, it doesn't matter what, what I'm doing in my life. When potentially clearly it's outside of God's word, the actions. People say, oh, no, you know, that's, up, that's between me and God. What if Jonathan just said that's between Saul and David? I think Jonathan demonstrates discernment here in a great measure. Remember, who is Jonathan? Saul's son. son. Who's David? No. No. Who's David? He's the next king. He's the next king. Anointed by God for Saul's throne. Is he from the line of David? I mean, Saul? Is he from the tribe of Benjamin? No. Does he have a race right to the throne? No. Is it the line of succession? No. David is an outsider to the family of Saul. Jonathan steps up and he warns him about potentially his life. That is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. If you have a true friend, they will warn you when you're at risk. When you do something, and I'm bringing it back to the church again, when you do something that potentially is sin and it's against God, the best friend you have is not the one that goes, oh, it's okay, just go on and do what you want to do. The best friend is the one who comes and says, brother, sister, I'm concerned. This isn't good. And we'll see that David is warned by Jonathan. David hadn't done anything wrong. Now, Jonathan could have stopped there, but Jonathan displays some discernment that's pretty incredible here. Because what he does next is he goes where? Haven't read it yet. He goes to his dad. Let's see what he does. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Jonathan was a good friend to David. Jonathan was a good friend to his father. He advocated for David to his father. 
But he didn't just go up and said, you're a dummy because you want to kill David. He didn't, he showed amazing respect. His avenue is don't put yourself in sin. Don't do this because it brings you destruction. Why would you sin against someone who's innocent? He's done it for you. And he advocates, he stands in his place. You got a really good friend when you got someone who will stand in your place, who will speak for you, who will advocate for you. Jesus did that for you. Jesus is the great mediator between God and man. Mark? He's still doing that. He's still doing that every single day. As David said it, we read it last week. He hears my prayers. He hears I can pray to God and God hears and God answers and God does. Is Jonathan gives us a beautiful picture here of not just a one-sided relationship. Jonathan has respect for his father. Jonathan looks out for his father. Jonathan looks out for David. Jonathan is a good friend. Jonathan displays some Jesus here. He gives us a little picture of Jesus. And that's a really good lesson for us right there to hang on to. His argument is solid. He says, didn't David put himself at risk when he went out there and killed the Philistine? And look how God rewarded that action. Look how God stepped in and gave us a great deliverance. He says, you know he's done good for you. He's not done anything against you. And David would continue this action throughout the rest of his life. He would not pursue Paul, Saul, to try to kill Saul. He had opportunity. He was right there. Twice he could have killed him. He was within a hair's breadth. He was with him, the hem of his clothing. He could have killed Saul and just got all his problems gone. But he said, no, I'm not going to do that because he's God's anointed. He had respect for God in that. But Jonathan here paints us a great picture of what a friend that sticketh closer than a brother is. They're not going to let you go. Do something stupid. Do something wrong that's going to cost you later. They're going to step in and they're going to say, hey, don't do that. But when they see danger coming in your direction, they're also going to tell you, hey, look out. Pay attention. Watch out for what's coming. Jonathan does that. So Saul heeded, I'm in verse six. So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past. In verse seven, we have everything seems to be back on the level again. Everything seems to be smooth and going right. Jonathan is an intercessor for David. Jonathan was a protector for his father. Jonathan stood in the gap. Jonathan saw the issue between two people and he brought resolution and it brought it back to a place where Saul swore an oath, basically, is David's not to be killed. Unfortunately, Saul had a problem. And what was good for Saul today wasn't going to stay good for Saul for long. And Saul was going to return right back. So it wasn't really a normal life because it was going to go sour pretty quick again. Let's read on a little bit further. Verse 8. There's a catalyst when it comes to Saul, by the way. Before we read this, I want you to see it. What is a catalyst? That's a 
chemical term or a scientific term, a catalyst is it brings things together without changing either of the components. So it's an initiator or an accelerator of a reaction without contributing to either of the components of the reaction. So when they're chemically, they want to mix a couple of components together. Uh, they want to make a chemical solution. They will put a catalyst in which will remain neutral and will not become part of the final solution. So ingredient A and ingredient B go into a tank with a catalyst in the tank. The catalyst makes A and B bond together, but the catalyst does not join A and B. So the solution, A in, B in, A, B out. It doesn't come out with the catalyst. The catalyst just facilitates or brings in that. So uh, Jonathan was that catalyst between his father, but there was a new catalyst as far as it came to Saul. And that catalyst for Saul was his manhood. It was his ego. It was his warrior spirit. For him, that was important that people saw him as the victor. It was important as people saw him head and shoulders above everybody else. That's what drove Saul. Pride. And pride comes before what? A fall. A fall. According to Proverbs. Isn't that interesting? Proverbs. Remember what I said? Solomon wrote Proverbs. Wisdom he got from his father. His father, who's in our story, dealing with the situation. God uses the situation to sift out wisdom that he gives us through Solomon that we can read in Proverbs today that guess what? It's as good today as it was that day. It's even better, actually, I think. Because you have the whole of God's word to pull it together. Okay, verse 8. Where? And there was war again. And David went out and he fought with the Philistines and he struck them a mighty blow and they fled from him. They fled from him. David went out. Who was David fighting for? Saul. He's fighting for the king. He's the king's man. He's the king's warrior. He's not out there for David. He's not out there for his own glory. He's just doing wisely what God had him to do. David goes out. The battle starts. Uh, he fights with the Philistines, strikes them a mighty blow, and they fled from him. And here's Saul's reaction. Here's that pride, that distressing spirit, that evil spirit coming on him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. There's a clue. Police work, we call that a clue. What do you use spears for? Okay, so do you do that uh, when you're bowling? When you're playing baseball? It's a tool of war. It's a tool of war. Do you see what Saul's doing? He's sitting in his chair fiddling with his gun. He's checking out his sword. He's got his spear. He's daydreaming about what it's like to be the victorious king out on the battlefield. He's sitting there, and the Lord allows him unrestrained I think pride to start welling up and that distressing spirit, that jealousy comes in and that distressing 
nature, the spirit that he has unchecked brings him to what? Verse 10. <laughs> okay, verse 10. Let's better read it. See what happens. I guess what's going to happen. Wait, David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pick, pin David to the wall with the spear. But he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Isn't it interesting? The guy, I, I mean, is David a threat to Saul? David's over there on his banjo, playing along, harp, whatever he had. He's playing along, music. He's not fighting a battle. He's not telling about what he did. He's, he's not doing anything. He's, he's soothing Saul. But Saul's sitting there with a spear in his hand thinking about all them Philistines that got killed by David. He's getting more upset more upset. And then he said, well, I'm going to, even though I swore I wasn't going to do it, as the Lord lives, he had said, remember? Well, that didn't seem to have much weight for him. Jesus said, swear not by heaven or by earth. You, you don't own those. You don't get to swear by them. If you're going to say something, don't, don't make a rash vow, Bible tells us. There's a prophet that made a vow one time, a judge, and it cost him his daughter. He made a vow before God, and to keep it cost him his daughter. That's a whole other story. Anyway, David throws the spear. David, I mean, Saul throws the spear. David ducks it. That tells you he's a pretty slick kid. And he gets out. He escapes that night. Okay, so we're going to read on down, down to 17. So Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him. Hey, wait a second. Psalm 59. Remember the first part of that, the intro? David's psalm that he wrote when Saul sent messengers to his house to watch him. Hey, here it is, right here. How about this? Saying, bring him up to me in the bed. Oh, wait, I jumped way ahead, way ahead. I, I went down to the second time he sends messengers. I'm in 11 now. To kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window. And he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed, covered with goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. I find this kind of uh, curious. Uh, a couple things in there. So Saul forgets exactly what he told God he wasn't going to do. But he's going to go do it now. He's going to have him killed. And maybe he rationalized that in his mind. Well, if I, if I don't kill him and someone else kills him, it'll be okay. But the word gets down to David through his wife. And David's wife says, hey, listen, you better get because uh, daddy's coming to kill you. Or daddy's sending someone to kill you. And they're watching the house right now. I saw him out there, you know, and, and you better get out of here. And so she lets David down through the window. He escapes. And then she takes an image the word is teraphim. Teraphim. It means a household idol. Ask yourself something. What in the world are they doing with idols in the house? Did God not say thou shalt have 
No graven images before me. There is a consistent and relentless desire by Israel. And I got to say, and it happens more among the women, as it's noted in scripture, to have something in the house, some household idol. Remember, remember Rachel and Leah? Running off and the, sitting on the idols and all that stuff going on when Jacob was heading out of town? What are they doing that? God said, when you left Egypt, he said, you had this stuff packed in your suitcases. You brought it with you. Sicketh your idols. And he mentions it more than once. I, I don't know why they kept going back. Solomon's wives had the high places and their idols and their groves and their stuff they built. But she might have actually found the best use for an idol here. Because she laid it in the bed, got some goat hair, Arranged it like it looked like David's hair. It tells you a little bit about him. He might have had disheveled head syndrome. Because goat's hair is pretty rough looking. But uh, she put some goat hair on there. And then she put some covers on top and drew the sheets up. So it looked like a dude laying in the bed. It also tells you something about the size of the teraphim that she had in the house. What in the world you got them things standing around for? If it looks like a dude laying in bed, that's a big decorate an item there in the house but that's how they operated and unfortunately she demonstrates later that her heart probably wasn't a whole bunch about god her heart was probably a little more towards the household idols but that comes along later but it's, it's pretty admirable that she steps in again a daughter of saul she steps in and she's going to help david and they make up a story and she says oh he's in bed sick Verse 15, then Saul sent the messengers back to see David saying, bring him up to me in bed, in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a covering of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michal said to answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Why should I kill you? Um, oh, she did. She did. Uh, she twisted it way up. It, and, and actually it works out pretty good. Saul lets her off the hook. Uh, but basically she just blames it on David. Oh, he was going to kill me. If I didn't let him go, he was going to kill me to escape. So I just had to go ahead and do it because he made me. Stockholm syndrome, they call it. <laughs> Patty Hearst, when she was kidnapped, uh, they wondered why she was in the bank with a gun and uh, why she was helping rob the bank. And uh, that's the excuse that they came up with later. It's called Stockholm syndrome. As you become, uh, you as a hostage become um, accepting of your captor's uh, doctrine. And basically you join them after a period of time. And... Uh, so that was her excuse here, is that David made her do it. She was a prisoner in her own house. And uh, it's interesting, did you see the movement? Saul first in verse 11, he sends messengers that they might, they might kill David in the morning. But when we get to verse 15, what happens? Saul says, I don't care if he's sick. You bring that bed to me with him in it, and I'm going to kill him. 
You see how far he has moved here? Just because of the evil spirit, the distressing spirit, the jealousy, the anger that he has going on. Now he's willing not only to go back on his word and let someone else kill him, but he's willing to step in and do it himself. It says, so David fled, we're in verse 18 now, and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah. So he's headed out. He's uh, down the road. Uh, Samuel is in retirement. Samuel is uh, running a prophet school uh, at this point at Ramah. That's his hometown. And uh, David runs down there and shows up with him. He tells everything to Samuel that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now, as it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as a leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When Saul was told, he sent other messengers and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku, and he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he, stripped off, he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and laid down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? It's really weird. Weird story going on here, but I think we can break it apart. I think uh, one of the things that's interesting here is as bad as the spirit of jealousy and rage and murder is, the spirit of God is stronger. The power of God's spirit, the power of praise to God is stronger than the power of evil. And I think we occasionally can forget that. And we see the devil and we see Satan as such an imposing force that we just barely are going to escape with our life. The power of praise and the power of worship and the power of God's spirit upon us is powerful enough to handle anything Satan can throw at you. If you want to do it in your own flesh, nah, you're not going to do so well. But the power of God. Let me break this apart. So David goes down, tells Samuel. And I can imagine that conversation. Samuel probably just shaking his head. He goes, I knew it. I knew it. I told Israel when they got a king, this is what's going to happen. But God said, go ahead and do it. I knew this was going to happen. I told you it was going to happen. And David lays all the stuff out. David says, man, I don't know what to do. What do I do? What do I do? And we don't have the rest of that conversation. I'd love to see that conversation 
between Samuel and Saul and David. I'd love to hear what Samuel advised David. And I think though, from scripture, from looking at the Psalms, we can probably find out and get a pretty good clue where he pointed him to. Because David always goes back to God. David always goes and cast all your care upon him for he cares for you. So we find those truths in God's word and we can see the end effect in it. Um, so Saul sends some messengers. He says, uh, he's down here by Samuel. So Saul says, oh, good, I got some messengers. What kind of messengers are they? What kind of message do they want to bring him? Warriors. Yeah, they're warriors. And what kind of message do they want to deliver? Is it a happy birthday, Graham? No. no? Off with your head. It, off with your head. Yeah, exactly. We're going to kill you. These are assassins. Messenger just means they're carrying the king's message. What is the king's message? Death. Go kill him. These dudes got one thing in mind, murder. They have a warrant from Saul at the highest level. They've been authorized to execute David. They head down there. This is awesome. Because when they get to town, they get down there and the messengers come in. Get on the right page here. And the messengers see the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing then the messengers, the murderers, the assassiners. I like that. I just, assassinators. I just made a new word. I like that one, assassinators. Uh, all of a sudden, they're engaged in the same activity. God's power took the murder out of them. God can change lives. I remember there was uh, one time in church we were talking about sin. And uh, somebody gave the opinion that there is a sin um, of someone who sexually abuses a child that God could never forgive. That person. Does that challenge your theology? I had to disagree with them. As... As terrible as that is, as horrible as it is, and I've had to deal with it at work. I've got cases that are going on right now. It's, it's, it's the depravity of sin just in the worst way. But you know what? That sin was on the cross. Sorrow and love met that day and love won. Does that remove the consequences? No. Does that remove the scars? No. Can God heal that? Absolutely. Murder? Yeah, God can do it. See, if you start separating out in your mind, you say, well, here's, here's a sin that I don't like, and this sin God could never forgive. What have you just done? You're doing the Saul. You're playing God. Yeah, no, you're playing God. You've said, God, you don't know better. I know better. This, um, you can't fix this one, God. You can't do that. And that's a dangerous place to be. It brought Saul to this place here. Is he decided to be God. Remember, he took the prophet job. He took the priest job. And now he's taken the God job. Saul's just gone out of bounds. Completely out of bounds here. 
As bad as the sin is, God's love, Christ's payment is still satisfactory for it. Or none of us have any hope at all. As soon as you limit God's ability to forgive, there's only one sin God calls out for which there is no forgiveness. It's not a physical action. It's a choice. You reject Jesus Christ, the witness and conviction of the Holy Spirit that Christ is Lord. That's the sin that will never be forgiven. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's because he will witness and he will testify of Christ. You ignore that, you reject that, you're done. You have no hope whatsoever. But every other sin was put on Christ. The nastiness of sin was all put on him. The pain of sin, the judgment of sin, the ugliness of sin was all put on him. He carried it all on the cross. He paid for it all. His blood flowed mingled down. Paid the price. So the messengers show up. They got murder on their mind. And, and next thing they know, they're, pure, they're prophesying as well. And what's interesting, let's talk about that word prophesying a little bit. What do you think they were talking about? Do you think they were predicting the um, future? Do you think they were uh, prognosticating the weather? <laughs> Do you think they were uh, proclaiming, uh, you know, I see you, uh, you know, like fortune telling. Where they were telling people what they were going to act like next week. What do you think they were doing there prophesying? That word prophesying, everybody has a little different picture of it sometimes. What do you think they were doing? I picture it as like telling God's mighty works. Okay. Anybody else? Were they uh, preaching God's word? Well, that would be connected with what Lori says, probably. Anybody else? The first time this word is used in the Old Testament is in Numbers chapter 11, verse 25. Uh, there are 70 elders who are present. Moses is the leader of the people that come out of Egypt. And this event happens, and it's interesting. And it says, The Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him, this is Moses, and took of the spirit that was upon him, Moses, and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. God gave us a picture of something really cool here. Is the 70 elders were given some of the spirit of God that rested upon Moses. They were empowered for the work that they would do, which was Moses' job. Moses was leading the children of Israel. God gave him 70 elders who would help him in that task to judge the people to correct the people, to encourage the people, to remind the people of God's work and God's word and God's wisdom. And that job that they would do, they were given the mantle of Moses. They were given the covering that God had put on Moses, his spirit, to help them, empower them to do the job. And it says they prophesied and they did not cease. Wrapped up within that, and each time that we see it in God's word, every time we see that word, it's not a bunch of fortune telling. It is 
repeating the mighty works of God. It is praising God in both song and speech. What was going on at Samuel's school was they were praising God and speaking of God's power, God's might, what God had done. They weren't reading the Bible because they only had the books of the law there. They didn't have the rest. They had Genesis, the Torah. They had that. But they were recounting what God had done for Israel. They're praising God. They're singing the songs. Yeah, Lord. I don't know. It's a translation issue. Um, I read it out of the King James. You're reading in the New King James. And there's argument whether it meant that it ceased. They only did that that one day or continued without ceasing. So I don't know. I don't have an answer for it. Uh, You can find commentators go every which direction and says it one way or the other way. So I don't know. Um. No, no, no problem. I don't know. That's that's the best answer. So, um, what's what's interesting is that Samuel had previously told Saul that that very same thing would happen to him. We we need to remember too, and in, in context, Lori, to what you're asking, um, is that the spirit of God was not given to common man. And was not upon all people. And like Saul, uh, it was given to him and removed. God took that back away from him. So either is likely with the 70 elders is they, they continued but did not have that same experience through the rest of their time. Or they continued helping Moses in that power. I don't know. And they don't, it doesn't go any further in numbers to tell us. But Saul had been told by Samuel the very same thing would happen to him in chapter 10, verses 5 to 6. He said, And it will happen when you come there to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them. And they will be prophesying. Gives us a little flavor of what's in this prophesying in terms of the word because again if you take just one direction you say well to be a prophet is only to speak about the future you've missed what biblically a prophet does is a prophet speaks the things of god so to preach god's word is to be a prophet is you're bringing out god's word god's truth and bringing it forward and samuel told him in the next verse He said, then the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This is when he was first going to be anointed to be the king. And uh, so the prophets are coming down the road. You're going to meet a group of prophets that are prophesying. And what do they have with them? (laughs) Tambourines, harps. They got all that stuff with them. And what do you think they're doing with it? I think they're praising God. Praising God in song. Praising God in worship. Praising God. Praising God's word. Uh, everything that he has going it on. 
um, he tells them, you will be turned into another man. And uh, uh, now Saul lost that privilege that God had given him, empowered by the Spirit of God. He had lost that privilege. Instead, God's Spirit was put upon David. And David continued in that. What the difference it made is amazing is that Saul ended up in a distressing spirit with an evil spirit and jealousy spirit, murderous spirit, rage-filled spirit, depressed, sad, angry, upset, whatever you want to put to it. Saul had that. And his number one problem, he just had fear ruled his life. David, on the other hand, under the Spirit of God, acted wisely, more wisely, more wisely, did great things. God empowered him to do the work that he needed to do. God set him up to do it. Now, which one do you want to live in? You want to live in the spirit of fear? You want to live in the power of God? Which one? I mean, yeah, live in fear? Join the world. Run out in the world, live in fear. Live in fear of germs and bugs and viruses and burglars and bad guys and everything else that are out there. Live in fear. Or trust God. It's a real cut and dry choice. It's trust God. Um, interestingly enough, second group of uh, Yahoo's come along. So the first group didn't do too good at murdering. So the second group, Saul says, well, that didn't work out. Let me send some more. When Saul was told what happened, he sent other murderers. Oh, messengers. And they prophesied likewise. Isn't that interesting? I wonder how he did that. He goes, I, I mean, you know, he sends, just picks out some guys. He said, go kill this guy. Head out. They come back. They were prophesying. They joined the church service. So he picks a new group. Okay, dudes, Listen. I'm not sending you down there to sing and dance. I don't want you getting involved with all that church that's going on down at Samuel's. Your job is to kill David. You guys understand that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got it, Saul. We're going to go do that. We're right on it. They head on down there. You know what they do? Spirit of God comes on them. Guess what? They join in the church service. They're singing too. They're just having the praise jubilee going on. Word gets back. You know what Saul does? He sends some more. He sends some more down the road. A third time, and the same thing happens. Now, when the word came back to him, what do you think he did? I can tell you exactly what he did, and I wasn't there. The word comes back. Someone says, Saul, you ain't going to believe this. Didn't work. He goes, I'm going to have to go do this myself. Man, you send somebody to do a job and they don't do the job. He said, I'm going to go fix it myself. I'll take care of this. I got this. I'm going to go down. And it gets even more embarrassing because in the spirit of God, what gets stripped away? All his clothes. And I don't know if he's still wearing linen breeches or something underneath there. It doesn't tell us. It just says he laid naked for a day and a night. But uh, what's interesting is that all the robes of royalty all the symbols of his office, all the things that he would have worn that showed who he was, God stripped off. God made him naked before him. Because he had nothing. He had nothing that said Saul on him anymore. Is God stripped it all away. It was the power of praise, the power of worship, the power of prayer. 
Turn to Joel chapter uh, 2, verses 28 and 29. I'm going to go quick here. Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Ezekiel, Daniel. Sorry, Isaiah, Joel. I've jumped over a bunch there. Joel chapter 2. It uh, shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, not sprinkles, not dabs, but on all Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Joel is prophesying about a time to come. And let's flip to the time to come. Acts 1.8. Jesus speaks of what will come in the same time period looking forward. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? I think a couple things stand out, and I brought this all to tie it together to, to just kind of uh, hopefully give us a focus on the power of God and God's Spirit. Joel said God is going to pour out, not trickle out, not sprinkle out, not dab out his Spirit. He's going to pour out his Spirit. In Saul's day, the Spirit of God was just a little here, just a little there on certain people at certain times for a certain work. What's interesting is that when Saul and his messengers came, they were overpowered by the Spirit of God that we're speaking about, that God empowers us with in Acts 2. We're talking about the Spirit of God. They were overwhelmed, and it changed a murderer into a worshiper in a moment. I think Saul probably sent progressively badder dudes, tougher dudes, more violent dudes, and the power of God overwhelmed them the second time. 
The third time, the best he had probably were the warriors that were ruthless. The worst, and he sent them, and the power of God overwhelmed them. And Saul, with all the murderous rage he had in his heart, with all the angerness, all the bitter, all the fear, all that jealousy, all that rage, he said, I'm doing it myself. Pride. And he come down there, and the Spirit of God overwhelmed him and stripped him naked of every vestige of clothing and everything he had that, that was Saul was poured out before God. In the Old Testament, when God would show up, when he showed up for the 70 elders, it says he came in a cloud and he talked with Moses. What's interesting is in Acts, the cloud's not there anymore. It's fire. See the fire of God. Representation of the Spirit of God, the very throne room of God. There's a picture there that's kind of interesting. Flip over to Hebrews chapter uh, 10, verses 19 through the end of it. I'll tell you why it changed. Or the Bible will tell us why it changed right here. 1019. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. God made a way where there was no way. The holiest of holies, the holy of holies, was a place within the tabernacle of the temple that only the high priest, the highest priest, could go. Only once a year. And what had to be in there? The smoke of the incense, the cloud of the incense. And God would come and God would dwell between the cherubim over the mercy seat, over the blood that Christ poured out on the cross, but symbolically represented by the lamb's blood that was put on the mercy seat that one time a year for the atonement. That was a picture of what Christ would do on the cross to make a way so that the veil which separated the Holy of Holies from all humanity would now be accessible to us. It says, let us be bold. We, we can boldly enter the very throne room of God. We can speak to God. And, and what's great is it draws in not only an individual presence in God's presence, but the corporate presence together in God's presence is the power of God. The spirit of God empowers us through salvation to enter God's presence and dwell in that place with other like believers in Jesus Christ. It says, don't forsake that. A lot of people, ah, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to do whatever. Well, maybe someone needs you to go to church. Maybe they need to hear your singing and praising. Maybe they need a Jonathan sitting in the pew with them. 
to help him out because of what's going on. Christ was our Jonathan. Christ made a way for us. He made a way through. And, and I love that on the day of Pentecost, God didn't fill the room with smoke so no one could see what was going on. And then the Holy Spirit was dabbed out on a few people in the room. Is God cleared the room. God put some fire up in the air and God dwelt in them in a way that immediately caused a church service to happen. And 3,000 people got saved when they saw the power of God. They joined the prophesying. Is as they spoke, what did they speak? One babble. They spoke the mighty works of God in every language that was out there that was present to be heard in. The Holy Spirit was doing some translating for some people so they could hear it in their language. God was speaking through individuals that a while ago were running from the cross. But through the power of God, now they're empowered to work. That same power is available for us. It's not a Saul-like dabbing. It's not a sprinkle that doesn't happen again. It's God pouring out his spirit for us. It's because Christ made a way for us through the cross, through that collision of sorrow and love that met on the cross that day. Amen. The spirit of God. Uh, that tells us something about praise. It tells us that our praise, our worship, our proclaiming God's works is powerful. It should be a part of who we are. When I see believers getting beat down and life's got them wore down, I think, what are you singing? What are you praising God about? What are you thanking God about? Is that power of praise, it, it, it completely ruined Saul's murderous plans. He couldn't find anybody to do murder for him. He couldn't even do murder himself. And all that happened was he collided with the power of praise that was going on. I would love to have been there because I bet no one even looked at the messengers. They just kept praising God. And the messengers walk in, swords, let's go, where's David? What are they doing? Swords are on the ground. They're praising God. Go ahead, Paul. The Bible says the dead praise not the Lord. Yeah. And? better praise the Lord to show that we're not dead. Yeah, that's an interesting point because when David said that, he was pleading to God not to take his life. When David said that, and David did not have a complete understanding, as evidenced in Scripture, of resurrection and eternal life. He says, God, don't kill me because otherwise I can't praise you. Because the dead don't praise you. You know what? It tells us is that all people are going to praise God. All people are going to say, Jesus, Lord, dead ones, live ones, in earth, in heaven, in hell. David was bringing something out in that psalm uh, from his understanding. Same as Solomon says, what good is it? You know, a uh, man and a dog are both the same. They're alive. They fall down. They to return to dust. They're both the same. Is that true? No, not at all. Man has soul. But what was Solomon, I mean, what was uh, Solomon talking about in Ecclesiastes? It has a context. The whole book of Ecclesiastes has a context. The earth, under, under, the sun. Sun. under the sun. It's all I can see. Is if I don't understand the spiritual things, I don't understand the things of God. As I look at it, if you're a man or a cow, it doesn't matter. You both fall down and die someday. And if you lay there long enough, you turn into dust, right? 
I mean, as you can see it under the sun. And so there's a lot of, in Jesus' day, it was the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And here it is. That's why they were sad, you see. That's a Bible joke. Sadducees. What's the first sport mentioned in the Bible? Yeah, there's sports in the Bible. First one mentioned in the Bible. Huh? It's baseball in the beginning. <laughs> Genesis 1 1. Okay. That was terrible. Okay. And I don't want to lose focus where we are, but I just did. So that's terrible. <laughs> 